Amen. Great thought, great song, good job. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter 3. I'm glad for the blood of Christ. Your good works won't wash away your sins. The church can't wash away your sins. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away sin. Mark chapter 3. On uh, Sunday nights, we have been working our way through a series on Bible doctrine, trying to understand uh, what we believe and teach here, as well as why uh, we do so. Believers, of course, must begin by learning what the Bible teaches to be sound doctrine, and then disciples who want to mature, those who want to be more wise, they learn why instead of just what. And I'm thankful for the number of believers who are interested in that, I certainly want to be one of those myself because knowing what we teach and why we teach that keeps perspective on everything we do here at Bible Baptist Church. Some things we do here because they're biblical. Other things we do here because those things link us with historical biblical churches. Some things we do here because they are the preference of this assembly of God. And when you and I don't know the difference in what is biblical and what is a preference of this uh, body of Christ, we might stand on the wrong things. A lot of people are changing things in Christianity because they think things are just a personal preference when in fact they're biblical. And other times people act like their preferences are key doctrines and that doesn't do any good for the cause of Christ either. Um, So we're talking about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is where we get our stability. The Bible warns that in the last days some would depart from the faith. It exhorts those of us who know Christ then to... uh, contend for the faith, earnestly contend for the faith, and so we're learning what the faith is. In fact, the last few weeks we have been talking about doctrines related to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life as believers. This, in fact, is our seventh lesson on that subject. You say, Brother Waller, you spent a lot of time on the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and I'm doing it on purpose. I think this is a misunderstood area. Uh, of the Scriptures and of the New Testament. There are a lot of abuses, and and I want us to understand uh, what the Scriptures do teach and what they don't, uh, because the Holy Spirit permanently lives in every true believer. Last Sunday night, we talked about the fullness of the Holy Spirit, uh, a phrase that is misunderstood, a phrase that is abused, and we talked about what it meant and how when the someone is filled with the Spirit, that is basically the Spirit of God speaking to someone's heart when we speak to their ears. It is not the same as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And last Sunday night, we focused on evidence of the fullness of the Spirit. Do you remember what they were? The three things that keep recurring in the 15 incidents in the New Testament where someone is specifically said to be filled with the Spirit. Do you remember Uh, boldness uh, in the faith, influencing people to do right as God defines what's right, and winning people to Christ. And if those three evidences aren't in your life, uh, you're not filled with the Spirit. And I hope we were all challenged because the fullness of the Spirit... Uh, unlike the presence of the Spirit, is something that you can have and not have and be filled again. I hope we were all challenged to desire more of the fullness of God's Spirit in our life. Now, since the 
evidence of the fullness of the Spirit is so desirable. I mean, what believer wouldn't want to be able to speak the truth boldly? What believer wouldn't want to influence others for righteousness? What believer doesn't want to win people to be part of someone coming to Jesus Christ? Because uh, that is so desirable. I mean, understand that to sin against the Spirit is a huge deal. I mean, we've talked about the benefits of the Holy Spirit in our, in our life. He is our comforter. I mean, what believer wouldn't want more of His comfort? What believer wouldn't want more of His help to remember what Christ has said? I mean, what believer wouldn't want more of the Holy Spirit's instruction in the things of God? More of His reproof when we sin? More of His help when we pray? I mean, what believer wouldn't want more manifestation of His gifts that we might more fully impact and edify other people around us? What believer wouldn't want more of His protection from evil or evidence of His power in our life? Any kind of true believer in Christ with any kind of desire for the things of God wants those things. And so in light of that, sins against the Holy Spirit would obviously hinder His work. Did you know there are several specific sins against the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Scriptures? Now, by the way, all sins that we don't confess with a repentant attitude obviously hinder the Holy Spirit. He's holy. And believers, because our salvation is secure, because the Holy Spirit is permanently in us until the day when God redeems us, understand the Holy Spirit never leaves but... We can hinder what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and through us by our life choices. The Holy Spirit wants to help all of us fill God's plan for our life in Christ. Hear me when I say He will not force His work in us or through us any more than He forces us to be saved. We must yield. We must walk in the Spirit so He is unhindered. And so tonight what I want to do is spend some time as we've spent six weeks talking about what He does in the world and in us. And it is obviously so desirable. I would like to spend tonight, and if the Lord tarries and I'm still alive and healthy, uh, next Sunday night talking about sins against the Holy Spirit. If you are able to stand, if you would stand tonight in honor of the Word of God, the title of our lesson is just the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. We're in part 7, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Mark 3, 22. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. He called on them unto him, and he said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wheresoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. 
Thank you. Might be seated. Now, when it comes to sins against the Holy Spirit, the only one most people are familiar with is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This particular story and this particular series of things that Jesus said is repeated in some form in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are not a lot of things that are in three Gospels, but this is one of those that is. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the details of this story because I want to talk about something else specifically tonight. But if we were to study it, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, Jesus had just cast a devil out of a man, and that man, by virtue of his possession by that evil spirit, had been blind and unable to speak. When Jesus cast out this devil and this man immediately was able to see and speak uh, that greatly amazed the common people and when they saw what happened and they rightly believed Jesus to be the Messiah. In contrast to that, the Jewish leaders, when they saw what happened, they said instead that Jesus was possessed by a devil and did what he did in the power of Satan and Beelzebub. And that is in verse 22. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Now, the Jews believed the prince of the evil spirits was a spirit named Beelzebub, and Jesus then, in response to their accusation of him, uh, he began to speak to them in parables. Uh, and, and, and that's what verse 23 says. He called unto them, and he said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, Jesus used parables as a teaching tool. Uh, they were a great teaching tool because those who did not believe in him and those who were his enemies, they didn't really understand what he was talking about because you cannot understand what Jesus has to say unless you've first believed on him. Uh, but parables, on the other hand, his disciples did understand and he taught them specifically what they meant. And here in parables, he teaches them that uh, if Satan were divided against Satan, if uh, Satan went around doing what he did, constantly casting out devils and constantly healing those that were sick, that his kingdom wouldn't last. That's what he says to them in verse 24. He says, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Uh, in fact, he teaches them if he weren't stronger than Satan, stronger than Beelzebub, that he would not have been able to do what he did. Uh, devils and would not have immediately obeyed him, and people would not have immediately been loosed from Satan's grip. That's what he tells them in verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man. Then he will spoil his house. But for tonight... Jesus then goes on to say that anyone who committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could not be forgiven. Verse 29, but they, he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Have you ever really thought about how strong of a statement that is? That if you commit this sin, you cannot be forgiven. It's a frightening statement. And that statement has led to a lot of speculation about what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Uh, can someone today commit that sin? Can a Christian commit that sin? Uh, what is that sin? 
Now, the account of this event in Matthew and Luke do not give a direct answer to what it means to blaspheme the Holy Ghost and to people who are sometimes a little lazier than they ought to be when they handle the Scriptures. Uh, they don't really know what it means, but Mark does give us a direct answer. And by the way, it shouldn't surprise anyone that such an important issue has a very clear answer of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because notice in verse 30, it says, because. And you ought to circle that word in your Bible because that links what he's just going to say. He says, you know, if you commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you cannot be uh, forgiven. And then notice he's, that threat, because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is seeing what Jesus did with your own eyes, hearing what he said with your own ears, and then accusing him of being possessed with the devil and doing what he did in the power of Satan. That's what it says. You may not like that answer, but that's what it says. Now, for whatever else that sin might be, we're clearly told what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is in this context, which means it is impossible for anybody to commit this sin today. Now, many years ago, I don't know, some of you have probably heard of a man named J. Harold Smith. He was a pretty famous preacher of two generations ago, and he had a sermon. He preached about this, and he preached that blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is for you to have God speak to your heart and call you to Christ for the last time, and then you say no and die in your sins. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that's not blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, even though it's not what's here. I do know this. If you reject Jesus Christ and die in your sins, you will never get forgiveness. I also know this, that there is a last time that God calls people to Christ. Now, I don't pretend to know when that is. I, I've known teenagers who were 18, 19 years old who had sat in church all their life and rejected Christ who literally said to me when I witnessed to them, I have no desire whatsoever to do that. That's frightening. I don't know when the last time God's Spirit is going to speak to someone and call them to repentance in Christ. I don't know if it will be years before they die. I don't know if it will be months before they die. I don't know if it will be five minutes before they die. I know this, it is always a big deal when God calls you to faith in Christ and repentance and to turn to God and say, no, I'm not interested. By the way, if you're here tonight, you're not sure if Christ is in your life and God has been drawing you, His Spirit has been speaking to your heart and drawing you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, I would suggest to you that you humble yourself and turn to Christ. Though we now know what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit clearly is, and that's the only sin against the Spirit many of us have ever heard of, there are some less well-known sins against the Spirit that hinder His work in us and through us. You know, you and I need to understand that the Holy Spirit is very powerful, but He is also sensitive. He's sensitive to sins against Him. 
By the way, any sin against God, technically speaking, is a sin against the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the third person of our triune Creator. But the Bible does list several specific sins against the Holy Spirit, and I think I could probably speak for the vast majority of people here tonight when I say, I do not want to hinder the Holy Spirit's work in me or through me in any way. As I've taught these things over the last six weeks, my heart has been stirred to fully have all the benefits of the Spirit of God living in me and for God to do His ministry through His Spirit fully in my life to the degree God wants to do it. Which brings up a good question. What kinds of sins against the Spirit clearly and specifically hinder His work in my life. Now, there are seven of them mentioned in the New Testament, one of which is blasphemy against the Spirit. There's one in the Old Testament as well. And I know the kind of people who, by and large, are here on a Sunday night. No one, uh, unless somebody drug you here, purposely wants to hinder the work of the Spirit in your life. Most of us would never intentionally do so. But because we underestimate His sensitivity, we do hinder Him. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. He is a permanent resident in every true believer. And so when He leaves, though He doesn't leave, He doesn't stomp His feet and slam the door. What happens as we just eventually catch ourselves living in our own strength, living with our own wisdom, and doing what we do in our own power. No one will ever live life well or do ministry effectively in your own strength, in your own wisdom, and with your own power. No one. I have no doubt tonight there are genuine Christians here and the Spirit of God lives in you because you're saved and yet you have very little of His joy, very little of His peace, very little impact on people in the circle of your life for good or for God. What a tragedy. I have no doubt there are people to hear tonight. You're a true Christian. The Spirit of God lives in you because you're saved and you have very little of His leadership and power in your life. Very little of His blessing on what you do in life or ministry. You have very little manifestation of His fruit. And you looked at those three evidences of the fullness of the Spirit and you thought to yourself, do you know what? I don't see much of that in my life. And so what I want to do Because I don't believe any, I believe the vast majority of here tonight, that is not something we want. We didn't intentionally let it happen, it just happened. And it happens through sins against the Spirit. What kind of sins against the Spirit are clearly and specifically given to us in the Scripture? Please go first in your Bible to Acts chapter 5. I know this is not a milk message. This is a meat of the word message. By the way, that's what Sunday nights are for. I, I, you're here. I, I, when I was a lay person, my favorite service was Sunday night. I always loved hearing deeper and more serious things of God. And I'm sure you do too. That's why you're here kinds of sins against the Spirit. Here's number one. The Holy Spirit can be lied to and tempted. He can be lied to and tempted. He's a person. (laughs) He's God living inside each of us as believers. Let's 
read a story here, Acts chapter 5, verse 1. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, gave up the ghost. Great fear came in all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. And Peter said unto her, How is it? that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. And then fell she down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost. The young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these sayings. See, the first two sins against the Holy Spirit are linked together in the same story in the early days of the church. They were obviously sins committed by Christian people. In fact, these particular people were committed Christian people, a man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. Those were days of great revival. Multitudes were saved and baptized. Days when the gospel was spread throughout Jerusalem and Judea. There was a fresh excitement about the resurrection of Christ. The zeal, the knowledge, the insight of the apostles just impacted everyone. There was unprecedented sharing, charity, fellowship, doctrinal unity, and boldness in the faith. There were unprecedented miracles. In fact, even Peter's shadow passing over someone would heal that individual. But hear me when I say people have always just been people. Saved people are just people. Church people are just people. There's only perfection found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Bible. And Satan, when God is doing something, he never sits idly back to just to let God's work go on unhindered. If you don't think because God has been doing great things at Bible Baptist Church that Satan isn't busy picking every scab and, and doing everything he can to stir up anything he can stir up, you underestimate our spiritual adversary. This is a prominent couple in the church who want to become more prominent. By the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting God to use you. But Ananias and Sapphira were willing to pretend to be something in public at church that they deliberately were not trying to be in private. You see, at that particular time, those who went into ministry, so to speak, they would sell their extra property and extra things, and they would give that money to the church and to the ministries of the church. And Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold some significant possession, and then they gave most of the money, but according to verses 1 and 2, 2 says they kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't know what part they brought. But if you sell something significant, whatever part they brought was a high percentage. 
You know, you don't, if you sell your house and you bring $5,000, I mean, and you say, hey, I'm giving everything to the church, you know, everybody knows that hey, your house was more than $5,000, you're lying. But whatever they gave was a significant enough percentage, 85, 90, 95%, that it would have appeared that they were given everything, but they were not. By the way, there'd have been nothing wrong with keeping part of it. Giving this was not required. It was not a commune. It was a place where wholehearted Christians sacrificially gave to the work of God. Now, beginning of verse 4, Whilst it remained, Peter says to them, was it not in thine, thine own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Listen, they didn't have to do this. This was a voluntary thing. They pretended to be something in the church. They made no attempt to be away from the church and God took what they did so seriously that the Holy Spirit did something that Jesus never did when He walked among men doing ministry. The Holy Spirit took the life of two believers who were hypocrites. In fact, Peter described what they were doing in verse 3. Notice, he said, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Notice he, in verse 9, describes what they did as tempting the Spirit. Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Here's two clear and specific sins against the Spirit. Sins that not only hindered His work, but in this case, cost these two Christian people their lives. To lie is to deliberately deceive. Uh, you're not lying when you tell someone something and you're mistaken. You're not lying when you tell someone something and you thought you were right, but it turned out you were wrong. A lie is when you intentionally deceive. They deliberately attempted to deceive the people of God and thus lied to the Holy Ghost. Let me ask you, away from here, are you sincerely attempting to be what you seem to be here? I believe we all have shortcomings, faults, failures, sins. We batter on a regular basis. I do believe we, uh, when we come to the house of God and among the people of God, we have to do the best we can. But listen, that, that's no excuse for living a hypocritical life. To lie to the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Are you living a life of integrity? No hidden life. No secret life. Nothing but transparency between you and your spouse. I've known students who seem to be something here. They make nothing, no effort away from here to be. I've known employees who seem to be something in the church that make no effort to be at work. I've known ministry workers and leaders who make no effort to be in their home what they seem to be in the church. Can I say to you, there is nothing more destructive for your children than for a parent to be obviously something different here than they are at home. You see, hypocrisy is not failing in our sincere attempt to do what's right. Hypocrisy is deliberately pretending to be something here. You make little or no effort to be away from here. Listen, the very best person in here is just a sinner saved by grace. But that's very different from living a hypocritical life. Lying to the Holy Ghost, sinning against the Spirit, greatly hindering Him and His ministry in your life. 
See, I hope you understand tonight the solution, if this is you, is not to decide to do less for Christ. The solution is to make our life away from here a better reflection of God's plan that we seem to be trying to follow when we are here. To tempt is to entice, to provoke to something, entice to something, to lure or induce to something. Here, it is tempting the Holy Spirit to judge them. To deliberately do wrong and tempt the Spirit of God to act in judgment and condemnation. It's saying, I know it's wrong to keep this money, but I'm going to do it anyway, and if God wants to judge me, judge me. It's saying, I know it's wrong to be a hypocrite, but I'm going to do it anyway and tempt the Spirit of God to bring judgment on me or someone close to me. It's saying, I know it's wrong to do this, but I want the pleasure of this sin so badly, I'm going to tempt God to bring judgment in my life and presume on His mercy and goodness. And you and I can see why these sins against the Spirit are linked together in the story. They go hand in hand, and both were clearly committed by Christian people, a man and a woman with the Holy Spirit living inside them. Let me ask you tonight, are you tempting the Spirit to act in judgment in your life by your willful defiance or hypocrisy? Listen, there's a reason the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. I don't, at this point in my Christian life, there's literally nothing that I do that I'm aware of because I fear God. Now, when I was first saved, there were some things I did because I feared God. But I know this, for me to just decide that God has taught me these things and God has done all this in my life and I'm just going to go do whatever, I fear that with good reason. And you should too. See, for a season it will seem as if all is well. But I've seen the broken lives, bodies, minds, and homes that result as time goes on. God will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You might think you're getting away with your secret life. You might think that because your parents or your spouse uh, or the people close to you don't yet know what you're doing online or all those, you, you might think you're getting away. You are not. I've seen the tears of parents and abandoned spouses. I've seen children broken by the sins of their parents. I've seen the loneliness of people in their 40s and 50s who live selfish, prideful, and immoral lives in their 20s and 30s. And as your pastor, God's man for this place, I plead with you to repent. Live a sincere Christian life. No one lives a perfect life. But every believer in Jesus can live a sincere Christian life. And I plead with you not to lie to or tempt the Spirit of God. You won't like how it turns out. If you and I want to have the wonderful benefits of the ministry of the Spirit of God in our life, we cannot lie or tempt the Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, please go in your Bible to Acts 7, just up a couple of pages. We're just talking about sins against the Spirit. Uh, again, 
God's Spirit never leaves you. If you're saved, or you're truly saved, Christ lives in you. You're kept by the power of God. Uh, Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. But understand that if you grieve, you sin against God's Spirit, He won't stomp His feet. He's going to slam the door. But you will just, without you realizing, slowly and increasingly so, have less and less of His benefits in your life. And you will just at some point look up and realize, wow, I'm doing everything I do in my own strength. I'm doing everything I'm doing in my own wisdom. I'm doing everything I'm doing in my own power. And you'll notice that it won't work well. There's a second sin. Third sin or fourth sin, I guess, against the Holy Spirit. We've talked about three. Uh, here's the second, uh, second point. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. He's a person. He's God living inside each of us as believers. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And many of you will recognize this as the tail end of Stephen's sermon to the Jewish leaders. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they've slain them which shewed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on him with their teeth, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up and steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And we'll stop there for tonight. Here, unlike tempting uh, and lying to the Holy Spirit, this sin is specifically linked to how unbelievers responded to the truth. Um, Stephen boldly spoke about their rebellion <laughs> over the centuries and he applied it to their rebellion in verse 51. Stephen boldly spoke about the way their fathers had treated the Old Testament prophets. He applied it to the way they betrayed Jesus of Nazareth to the Romans and sought His death in verse 52. This clear message preached in the fullness of the Spirit did not bring about their conversion. It brought about their rage in verse 54. When uh, they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on Him with their teeth. Yeah, listen, I, I wish I could tell you that if you speak and witness and preach and teach and live with the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit, that everybody around you is going to repent and everybody around you is going to turn to righteousness and everybody around you is going to believe. But that's not true. Some people around you are going to be enraged and your righteous life and the clear light of your life is going to cause them instead of humbling themselves it's going to cause them to be angry but their failure to respond to the message of Christ and leadership of the Spirit verse 51 is called resisting the Spirit you do always resist the Holy Ghost to resist is to exert oneself to counteract another force. In this case, exerting oneself against the will of God, the leadership of the Spirit. To resist is to withstand or oppose something. In this case, to withstand and oppose the message of the Spirit through Christ and Old Testament prophets. 
In this case, it is the Spirit of God speaking to unbelievers and drawing them to Christ and repentance. But hear me when I say additionally to that, believers can resist the Holy Spirit. He can exert Himself in our life. He can try to get us to do something and you and I can, instead of yielding, we can withstand or oppose that. Hear me when I say there are certain things that God is looking to get, moving us through His Spirit, that He moves all believing people to do. And there are other things where God's Spirit in the life of a believer, He is moving you as an individual to do something because it is a part specific to your life, to your calling, to your gifts, to your circumstances, to your age, to where you are right now. And we can resist the Spirit. Though I'm not proud of it, there was a time early in my Christian life when the Holy Spirit was telling me to stop chewing tobacco. And it might be a gross habit to you, but I liked it. And I made excuses and resisted Him for a while. There was a time early in my Christian life when the Holy Spirit was telling me I needed to love and honor my wife more. And I made excuses. And I resisted Him for a while, though my wife deserved far more than I was giving her. There was a time when the Spirit of God was moving my heart to pray more. And I made excuses and resisted. There have been times in my life when the Holy Spirit has been telling me I needed to make more effort to memorize the Bible, to hide God's Word in my heart. And at times I've resisted that. There have been times the Holy Spirit was telling me I needed to forgive someone who didn't deserve it and hadn't asked. And I'm ashamed to say sometimes I resisted that. Made excuses for a while. Recently, the Holy Spirit has been telling me I need to be more burdened for those who are not saved. That my eyes are too dry when I consider the true plight of those who don't know Christ. I've been trying not to resist the Spirit, to yield my heart and mind, to pursue sinners more like I should. Resisting the Spirit isn't something specific to unbelievers, though unbelievers at times resist the Spirit's call to their repentance and faith. Resisting the Spirit is something that all of us can do. What is the Holy Spirit trying to get to happen in your life? Is it something that is for all of His people? We all have some things like that. And then because we have a personal God, there are some things that are very personal to us. What is the Spirit of God trying to get you to do? Are you resisting? So I don't know what He's trying to get me to do. I guarantee you, just say, Dear God, show me where I'm resisting the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that comes to your mind, that's it. Say, well, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's resisting the Holy Spirit. See, far, far too often we, um, we think about all, all this yielding to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. We, we, we think about all this spooky stuff. When in reality, the vast majority of times, 99 times out of 100, it's a very practical thing. 
Our faith is a very practical thing. And there are just areas of life where God's Spirit says, I want you to do this. I want you to stop that. And I want to exhort you tonight, please stop resisting the Spirit. We all want His full comfort. We all want His full help in prayer. We all want His full reproof of our sins and the sins of the world. We all want the full manifestation of His gifts in our life. We all want His fullness. We all want all of His help in prayer. We all want that. We want His power on us when we, when we witness. But I, I want you to understand the Holy Spirit is powerful, but He is sensitive. And if you're not careful, though He will never leave you, You'll just find you're doing everything you do without the joy of God, without the peace of God. You're doing what you do in, the, in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And I plead with you tonight, please yield to God's Spirit. Amen? If you quietly stand.